Escape Pod 191 March 19th, 2009 Today's story This is how it feels by Ian Creasy This is Escape Pod Everybody, welcome Hello and welcome to Escape Pod I am your host for the day Tony C. Smith Now I'm guessing there's quite a few of you out there Have just pulled a, a grimace As if you've been sucking on a rather bit of lemon Well hopefully by the time we get to the end of this show That might have mellowed a bit So before we go any further Let me introduce myself I am, as I've said before, Tony C. Smith The host of Starship Sofa Podcast And I will tell you a little bit more If you will bear with me at the end of the show About Starship Sofa but about a few years of wondering how I came to be sitting at the helm of Escape Pod. Well, best way I can describe it is, remember when you used to go to school and you go into school with your mum and dad and in that play yard there was one child that would always have the best toy, the most amazing toy and everyone would clam around him screaming, can I have a go, can I have a go? Guess what? That toy is Escape Pod. That child is Steve Ely. I was one of them kids that, Steve, can I have a go, can I have a go, can I have a go? And one day, just not long ago, Steve stood up from playing a skate pod. The crowd went silent. And he walked over to me and says, Tony, do you want to have a go? So here I am on the deck of a skate pod. And I'll tell you what, it is very nice. He has got some very nice equipment here. So, and I don't know how he's got this seat. He's got one of these faster than light drive, keep your bum warm, turbo thruster seats. I've had one of these on order for a long time. So hopefully our trip on Escape Pod won't be too bad. And some have said that my style of presenting and Steve's style of presenting are totally at the opposite ends of the spectrum. And that, in my view, is a very good thing. And I hope you agree too. But there's one thing we do share, and that's a passion for great stories. One of the main driving forces of Skate Pod, and it certainly is on Starship Sofa as well. Speaking of great stories, may we present This Is How It Feels by Ian Creasy. I'll just give you a little heads up into the life of Mr. Ian Creasy. He lives in Yorkshire, England. He has published stories in various magazines and anthologies. His most recent being Cut Loose the Bonds of Flesh and Bone, which appeared in Asimov's in September 2008. This is how it feels. Originally appeared in Asimov's in March 2008. About the genesis of the story, the author says, The story was born at my mother's annual summer garden party. In the sunshine, among the conversation and laughter, small children scampered happily around. It was a picture book vision of family life. And because I am a writer, with a sliver of ice in my heart, I thought, what if one of these children died? How does it feel to suffer the loss of a child? Narration today comes from FNH. Just give you a little heads up on FNH, who records audiobooks for LibriVox, runs an audio review blog and personal blog. He also hosts a number of podcasts, two about board games, one about history and one which features fiction, the Cthulhu podcast, which presents history and music of the 1920s, as well as the works of HP Lovecraft and similar authors. He has a wealth of podcast blogs and websites. Here are just a few. The Cthulhu Podcast.co.uk, Print and Play.co.uk, Blogs at Free Audio Review.blogspot.com, Felbrig.blogspot.com. There is many more. Check them out. 
So Skipod is very proud to present This Is How It Feels by Ian Creasy. This Is How It Feels by Ian Creasy. As Nathan hurried to pack his son's lunchbox, sandwiches, crisps, an apple included more in hope than in expectation, he fought back pangs of sorrow for the other lunchbox, the flower fairy's box he'd never pack again. Forget Jenny, he told himself. She was never my daughter. He watched Christopher fussing over his breakfast, scooping individual cocoa pops from the bowl and crushing them on his tongue until his teeth looked like brown stumps. Eat up, lad, or we'll be late. But I'm waiting for the milk to go chocolatey, said Christopher, with his timeless priorities of an eight-year-old boy. Nathan glanced at the clock. Well then, while you're waiting for that, why don't you put your things in the car? Christopher scampered upstairs and began clattering around in his room. Nathan checked that his own briefcase held everything he needed. Client reports, product updates, background reading for any unlikely spare moments. Then he packed up his laptop on which he'd been completing last-minute work before breakfast. On his way to the front door, Nathan dodged aside as his son threw a half-empty backpack over the banister down into the hall. He bit back the instinctive rebuke. Christopher ran downstairs until he reached the fourth step from the bottom, then jumped the rest of the way. Nathan's eyes stung as he remembered how Jenny used to do just that. The same jump down the stairs, the same windmilling of her arms as she landed. The grief swept over him like a palpable wave, making him stagger backward. Dad? Christopher kicked his backpack down the hall to the door. You all right? It's nothing, said Nathan. He rubbed the implant port behind his right ear. It's nothing. It's not real. But it felt real. Have you got everything? he asked. I thought you had football this afternoon. Oh, yeah. Christopher's grin shone with enthusiasm. I'll get my kit. Knowing that if left to himself, Christopher would spend far too long choosing which of the replica shirts to wear. He had five Manchester City players, plus assorted England stars past and present. Nathan said... I'll get it. You finish your breakfast. He loped upstairs to forage for shirt, shorts, socks and boots. All the while he was conscious of the clock ticking out the moments of the morning. He had to get his son to school, but beyond that lay client meetings at half past ten in Oswestry, normally a routine drive away. But driving wasn't routine anymore. Downstairs, Christopher had finished his cereal, in the process spreading the chocolate stains across a surprisingly wide area. Nathan sighed at yet another delay. Go wash your face and brush your teeth. At last they headed outside, greeted by garden sparrows sounding rather more cheerful than the bleak drizzle warranted. We'll be late, Christopher said happily as he climbed into the silver dual fuel BMW. Nathan's wife usually drove Christopher to school, but whenever Yvonne went on tour, Nathan took over, cramming yet another task into a crowded day. He sometimes thought about employing an au pair, but he was already too close to becoming the kind of father who only saw his children at weekends. As they approached St Mary's Primary, the streets grew more congested, the road full of cards and clanking scooters, the pavements full of children in ugly maroon blazers. Parental umbrellas projected holograms of consultancy logos. A sweet yeasty smell hung in the air, a legacy of older vehicles not optimised for bioethanol. Nathan's stomach filled with dread. 
All the girls on either side of the road reminded him painfully of the lost Jenny. She died coming home from school, run over by a speeding car. Somewhere in the fog of grief, a distant horn blasted out. Dad, I think they're honking at you. The BMW had slowed to a crawl as Nathan subconsciously reacted to the memories. In the rearview mirror, he saw a Volvo driver frowning at him. The horn blared again. I'll drop you off here, said Nathan. The boy gathered his bags and slid out of the car. Are you coming to watch me play football? Sorry, busy day. I'll pick you up afterward and you can tell me all about it. With a disappointed trudge, Christopher joined the throng of children. Nathan drove off down a side street and concentrated on navigating through the speed bumps and silly little mini roundabouts the council had installed. He couldn't dispel the images from his mind. Jenny blowing out the candles on her birthday cake. Jenny in the hospital, in the mortuary, laid out in a child-sized coffin. He pulled into a parking space, then took a deep breath and a gulp of water. It's not real, he told himself. It's not my daughter. But it didn't help. Nathan felt as if he'd dropped his brain on the kitchen floor and then tried to pick up the bits and reassemble his mind. But too many pieces had rolled under the fridge so that his skull ended up stuffed with crud and fluff from other people's spillages. Sitting inside the car made him feel sick. He walked to a nearby bench where he booted up his laptop and downloaded the usual blizzard of emails. Nathan worked in the pensions industry, which was constantly in flux as the government struggled to persuade people to save more for their ever-lengthening old age. The emails contained links to regulations, explanations and valuations, along with various questions and draft reports from his office AI. Nathan ploughed through his inbox, dispatching succinct, haphazardly spelled replies. He noticed the time and shook his head. As ever, he'd spent a little too long doing email. His client load had swelled when PDMH offloaded consultants in a cost-cutting drive, foreseeing the cull he'd previously volunteered to take on extra territory. But it put him constantly on the back foot, scurrying everywhere at the last minute. Nathan returned to his car and put the radio on loud in an effort to drown out the thoughts. Jenny, with compost in her hair as she planted tomato and cucumber seeds. Jenny dashing to the greenhouse every morning to see if they'd sprouted, that the implant pumped into him. Even when he reached the main road, he found it hard to drive over 30 miles per hour. Cars kept honking and overtaking with disdainful revs of their engines. He listened to the sports roundup, focusing on the rescheduled Grand Prix race. He'd spread bet on Ferrari for the Formula One Constructors' Championship. The news update followed. It's 10 o'clock on Wednesday, the 19th of January, and here with the latest headlines. January 19th, Jenny's birthday. Memories of all her past birthdays slid into Nathan's brain in a montage of cakes and presents and singing and parties. She would have been seven this year, but there'd be no more birthdays, no more anything. Just a silent house. The room left untouched, the dust slowly settling on her clothes, her dolls, her colourful scribblings blue tacked to the wall. This is how it feels. An empty garden where everything once green is now grey. A frozen pond with ice all the way down. A compost heap where rats endlessly gnaw at the rotting scraps of your heart. Nathan braked, narrowly missing a cyclist as he pulled over and stopped the car. He began to cry, then angrily wiped his eyes. 
Jenny wasn't his daughter. Christopher didn't have a sister. But the transplanted emotion felt as real, more real, than his own memory. It affected his driving, as indeed it was intended to. He'd known its purpose, but with brash confidence, he'd thought he would soon get used to the implant, soon master it. Instead, it had mastered him. Today was the worst it had ever been. Looking at the dashboard dial showing the miles left to drive, Nathan knew he couldn't reach Oswestry in time for the meeting. He'd have to phone Alan Selden, the secretary to the trustees, and apologise. Nathan pounded the steering wheel in frustration. He could claim his car had broken down, was stuck in traffic, whatever, but he didn't want to lie. Besides, Alan was a bluff Welshman who responded better to an honest admission of cock-up than to the flimsy excuses. Nathan remembered the trustee's fund manager, explaining why he'd underperformed the benchmark. We made a pig's ear of it. We picked the wrong sectors, and it all went south when the recession hit. The trustees had warmed to the manager's openness, and instead of sacking him, had given him a deadline to turn performance around. Nathan called his client. Sorry. I'm stuck outside Manchester. I can't get to the meeting. What's the problem? said Alan brusquely. I've got an implant that's doing my head in. I was clocked three times on speed cameras and I had a choice between losing my license or having an implant. It's from some guy whose daughter was run over by a speeding motorist. Twelve months sentence. I thought I could live with it, but it's really messing me up. It doesn't matter what road I'm on. I just can't go over thirty. I keep getting these visions of... Nathan stopped, conscious that he was gabbling. Sorry to hear it. Those implants can be tough. My brother-in-law got one for drunk driving, and now he can barely have half a shandy down the pub. Still, if you can't drive fast, you could have set off earlier. Had to get the young lad to school. My wife's on tour, playing Glasgow tonight. Then you should have made other arrangements. We're running a business, not a crash. And the FD's been saying we should retender the contract. That pensions just keep sucking money out of the company, and we need to plug the leak. Nathan swallowed hard, suppressing his resentment at the implied insult to his consultancy. Alan went on. We'll postpone your bit until we've looked at the corporate restructuring. I'll send you the minutes after the meeting. Okay, let me know when you want to reschedule. And again, I'm sorry about this. Nathan hung up, then tried to slow his breathing with one of the calming exercises from his wife's meditation manual. Alan's attitude ticked him off, yet he couldn't blame the man and this wasn't the first client appointment he'd had trouble reaching. The other day he'd only just squeezed into the Liverpool conference after everyone else had already finished coffee and hello. This couldn't go on. He couldn't keep trying to shrug off the implant's effect as he might shrug off the flu. His mind had no immune system, no antibodies to neutralise the foreign sentiments dripping into his brain. Yet what could he do? If he went back to court, they might allow the alternative sentence of losing his driving license. But he needed to drive. That was why he'd originally accepted the implant. His clients were scattered across the map like pimples on the arse end of nowhere. Shabby coastal resorts, industrial estates in decayed conurbations, abandoned farms converted into rural micro-businesses. He had to keep his license. His job depended on driving, and his family depended on his job. Yvonne barely earned enough to cover her touring costs, so the implant would have to be dealt with. There was a black market in implant inhibitors, antidotes, overrides, 
open-source hypno-hacks too new to even be illegal. Nathan knew he could find a backstreet chop shop and pay a tattooed mod god to open up his brain and tinker with it. They'd leave the external feed intact to pass the monthly probation checkups, but the internal input could be rerouted, transformed with dreamy logic into something less intrusive. Yes, the chop shops could bypass the implant, if you trusted them. The official justice chips were bad enough. The conspiracy channel claimed that they had super-sexual phasing effects to make people pollute less, recycle more, vote Lab Dem, turn into zombies when someone in a secret bunker pressed a big red button. But the under-the-counter stuff, who knew what was in it? The mod gods could tag anything to the implant override. Malware, memes, subtle cravings for certain products or behaviours, and you wouldn't even notice until the end of your month when the bank balance ran out and you wondered why you donated all of your money to obscure offshore charities. An illegal shunt might do anything. Nathan wasn't that desperate. Not yet. Still, if he started losing clients, he'd risk PDMH marking him down for the next cull. Soon he might have no choice. He needed another answer. He needed some way to nullify the chip's impact. Until now, he'd been trying to escape the drip feed of false feeling, trying to run away inside his head. But that couldn't work. Like a child scared of going to school, he would never master the problem until he faced its source. Nathan had to confront the implant and expose its unreality. When he could experience the artificial emotion and truly know that it wasn't real, then the illusion of grief would lose its power. He needed to see the underlying truth, to make the falsehood wither away. The truth began with a dead girl. Jenny something. Jenny who? Nathan turned on his laptop and delved through the disclosures and waivers relating to the judicial implant. A name surfaced. Begale. It echoed faintly in his mind. He searched online cemetery records for the name Jenny Begale. Nothing. He tried again looking for Jennifer Begale. Lawnswood Cemetery in Leeds had a Jennifer Begale, and the dates looked right. Six years. Only six years, seven months. She would never grow up, never choose what subjects to study or sports to play, never agonise over which job to take, which boy to date. Furiously, Nathan put his hands over his eyes, pressing his eyeballs so hard that the tears came from pain rather than grief. He set off for Leeds, a jaunt across the Pennines on the M62. The journey would interrupt his afternoon schedule of conference calls and their ever-urgent paperwork, but if necessary, he'd postpone some of that until it became tomorrow's last-minute rush. After all, what would life be like without a mad dash to meetings and deadlines? He sometimes felt that if he didn't wake up with six urgent things to do before breakfast, he wouldn't know what to do. He'd just lie in bed until his cell phone prodded him into life. Two hours of slow driving later, Nathan pulled up outside Lawnswood Cemetery. The website gave him a tagged map of the plots. Not wanting to carry the laptop with him, he glanced at the map, then locked all his gear in the car boot. Flanking the cemetery gates, carved griffins gazed at him impassively, their stone the same dull grey as the drizzle-soaked sky. As he paced along the gravelled paths, Nathan saw dates and epitaphs on lichen-spotted tombs, with professional interest, he noted the mortality states of prior decades, the cohorts of workers who died in middle age, barely drawing any pension. 
There was once a time when the Queen sent a congratulatory telegram to anyone who reached their hundredth birthday. Now she was a centenarian herself, with poor Charles still the eternal heir to the throne in his eighties. The cemetery lacked visitors, save for someone walking their dog around the perimeter. A biting breeze blew dead leaves across the graves. Nathan hunched his shoulders and huddled into himself. He'd worn a smart suit anticipating the indoor meeting, not a wet and windy graveyard. In the distance, beyond the ivy-choked fence, he heard the jackhammer beat of dance music. He entered a new wing of the cemetery, where the headstones had crisp edges and uneroded inscriptions. Wreaths lay askew, battered by the wind. Electric candles shone with brittle sparks of memory. Occasionally, a motion-activated hologram would spring up from a grave, offering recorded greetings and AI-simulated conversation like a ghost eager to hear the day's news from the corporal world. Then, as Nathan moved out of range, the holograms would fade back down into the earth, as if they had failed the audition to return to life. At a bend in the path, he looked around, unsure of his location relative to the map, but relishing the uncertainty as proof that he didn't belong here, that he had no connection to this place. He scanned the nearby graves, and saw a white headstone with incised black script. Jennifer Vivian Pigale, born 19th January 2026, died 25th August 2032. Beloved daughter of Lawrence and Martha, a heaven-sent flower plucked too soon. In Nathan's mind, a torrent of emotion poured forth, a kaleidoscope of remembered games and cuddles and tantrums and let's pretends. He didn't try to push it back, but he let the grief wash over him, all the while thinking, this isn't mine, I have never been here before. As he stepped towards the grave, a small hologram appeared, a young girl with long fair hair dressed in white and carrying a toy koala, her lips smudged with ice cream. Nathan recognized her from the implant-haunted dreams. His heart stuttered. She frowned. Who are you? You're not my daddy. No, I'm not your father. Nathan spoke with emphasis, trying to etch the words into his brain. Are you digging our garden? I want rhododododododendrons. She spoke in a sing-song, tapping her foot in mid-air at each rodo and dodo. I'm sorry, I'm not digging your garden. In the implant's memories, his daughter lay sprawled on the lawn while he recited all the flowers for her, all the daisies and pansies and roses, and he made up silly names for the blooms he didn't know so that she giggled at angel slippers and fairy feathers and true love waits by the cabbages. That wasn't my garden. This isn't my daughter. She doesn't even look like me or like Yvonne. The cognitive dissonance dazed him but he embraced it, like Winston Smith accepting that two plus two made five, only by confronting it could he overcome it. Jenny wailed, and in a thin synthetic howl, Go away, you bad man! Reflexively, Nathan stepped back. The hologram vanished, his false emotion remained squatting inside his head like a sluggish toad. Nathan knew that the grief overlay wouldn't disappear. It couldn't disappear, because the implant kept feeding it in but he could force it to hibernate in its own little nest and stop swamping his brain. Nathan stared at the gravestone. The emotion in his mind felt as artificial as the taste of cheap strawberry-flavoured sweets. As it became more distinct from his genuine feelings, it became a little easier to, not ignore, but disregard. 
he felt that this expedition had definitely helped. He'd seized a shard of reality that he could cling on to whenever the implant's unreal sentiments threatened to overwhelm him. Who the fuck are you? said a harsh voice to his left. Nathan jumped at the interruption, then turned and saw a man with shaggy blonde hair wearing a long black raincoat and muddy shoes. He carried a jam jar full of yellow chrysanthemums. You must be the father, Nathan realized. Instinctively, he rubbed the shiny spot behind his ear before regaining control of his hand and stuffing it in his pocket. The man's gaze followed the gesture. You have an implant. His gaunt face looked as raw and ragged as a half-finished taxidermist specimen. Is that my implant? Are you one of the speeders who got sentenced with it? Nathan nodded. Yes, I'm sorry to disturb you. So you should be. What the hell are you doing here on my daughter's birthday? Are you one of those conspiracy channel fuckheads? Do you think it's all fake? He stepped forward and pointed at the grave. What do you want me to do? Dig up Jenny's coffin and show you the bones? As he moved within range, the hologram appeared. Daddy, you brought me flowers. Jenny smiled as if it was summer, as if they were all about to go on a long-awaited holiday together. Yes, yeah, sweetie, but I see you've had a visitor. Did he introduce himself? This is a man who killed you. I did not, exclaimed an outraged Nathan. You could have, said Pigail in his low, cracked voice. You're just the same as the guy who did kill her. Spin along without care in the world. How bloody hard is it to keep to the limit? Exasperated, Nathan shook his head. I never drive fast near schools. I have a little boy myself. I only got clocked by cameras on my way to client meetings. And where are these oh-so-important meetings of yours? On the moon? In another universe where there aren't any kids? The hologram girl looked from one man to the other with frightened eyes. She raised the toy koala to her face and stroked its fur against her cheek. Nathan stared at Pigail and said, I'm sorry for your loss, believe me. I know how you feel. But I refuse to feel guilty for something I didn't do. You know how I feel? Pigail glanced towards Nathan's right ear, then shook his head. What's your sentence? Six months? Twelve? For me, it's a lifetime. Don't spit me that bullshit. A jaunty tune rang out from Nathan's jacket pocket. Automatically, he reached inside and grabbed the mobile. You're taking phone calls on my daughter's grave. Pigail raised his arm, as if about to lash out. Nathan began to reply, then perceived that nothing he could say would mollify the man. He knew too well what awful emptiness lay behind the hollow voice, the lank mask of her face. I'll take it somewhere else. Sorry to trouble you. The words sounded so inadequate. He felt they might turn into dust as soon as they left his mouth. He hurried away. As he strode down the cemetery's gravel path, each tiny stone a black petrified tear of sorrow, he answered the phone. It was a client, of course, a client wanting action on something or other. Nathan scrawled rain-soaked notes for a task that would percolate up from the bottom of his to-do list until it became another last-minute rush job. The cell phone pumped out urgency, demanding attention like another version of the implant, as if Nathan were just a mobile motherboard for the devices driving him. When the client rang off, Nathan couldn't help glancing back towards the graveside. He saw Pigail, 
slumped over the headstone, his form so gaunt and still as to resemble an empty raincoat that some tramp might gratefully steal. The jam jar lay on its side, yellow flowers spilling onto the grass. A translucent girl stood beside her father, trying to hug him and hold him, but her arms just kept slipping through. Then the motion sensor timed out and the hologram vanished. Nathan wiped his eyes without trying to suppress the tears. He walked back to the car, grateful to escape the pounding rain. Turning up the heater, he let the dampness gently steam out of his suit. This is how it feels. The whole world a graveyard, everywhere you walk treading on your daughter's bones. He checked his watch, remembering that he had a conference call scheduled for three o'clock. His calendar pinged reminders for the last-minute prep before tomorrow's meetings, and he needed to pick up Christopher after football. Nathan drove away, cautiously easing into the Leeds ring road. As always, the implant pumped pictures and feelings into his mind. Jenny carrying a frog in a bucket, her arms smeared with green pondweed. Now the images segued into his memory of the holographic girl and the futile scrabbling of her ghostly arms. It's not real, said Nathan to himself, reciting the stale old mantra. But he knew that for someone else, it was real. He realised that the implant projected so many vivid memories because Bigail had spent so much time with his daughter. The car crept along at thirty miles per hour. As he pressed harder on the accelerator, he remembered the way Jenny's phantom foot had tapped in mid-air. The muscles in his leg clenched and spasmed. Behind him, a Renault honked. The driver gestured insultingly as he jinked and zoomed past Nathan's BMW. Here we go again, thought Nathan. He was tempted to visit a chop shop and get the implant rooted out, regardless of the side effects. But even without the implant, he would still remember the hologram girl and the toy koala, her father's face hollowed out with sorrow. As he pulled over to think, his mobile beeped a reminder alarm. Nathan shook his head. If he didn't have so much work to do, so many last-minute jobs, he wouldn't need to drive so fast. He'd been hoarding clients to forestall being downsized, but it would do neither him nor PDMH any good if he lost his license or fried his brains with a backstreet chop shop. He needed to slow down, not just in his car, but in his life. Nathan cancelled the upcoming conference call and turned off his phone. Then he sedately piloted his way back into traffic and headed west, pottering along behind a slow-moving lorry. With no more interruptions, perhaps he would even arrive back early enough to watch Christopher play football. After all, Nathan didn't know how much time together they might have. The final whistle could blow tomorrow. This is how it changes. Here. Now. And there you go. I hope you enjoyed that story. It certainly, for me, was one of those stories that made me sit up and think, I am a father who's got a daughter now who is trying to break free of mum and dad's grasp and go to the mall by herself, go to the cinema with her friends. No more does she want really mum and dad there, you know, we're a bit of an embarrassment. Sometimes she wants to be with her friends all the time. And it's hard, it really is hard to kind of break loose, you know. And my mantra lately to me daughter has been, is your phone switched on? Text us, text us. 
don't talk to strangers phone is when you do this text is when you do that you know these are hard times for parents you know and everyone goes through it and it's a strange time and that story is something that kind of bites deep and makes you really think about you know being a parent especially as most people now do drive and you get behind the wheel of a car it's one of those things we all have to think about just slow down but that was a great story do leave comments on the forums your views are much appreciated so what do you get if you come over to Starship Sova? Well, on board Starship Sova, there is a number of programmes. One of the main programmes is Oral Delights. Spelled with an A, by the way, not an O. I was pointing that out quite early on in the show's birth and quickly changed it when I realised. So think of Starship Sova as an audio version of some of the great sci-fi magazines out there the likes of analog the likes of asimovs we are like that in audio terms so on starship sofa you'll have a little bit of fact you'll have flash fiction you'll have poetry you will have main fiction all wrapped up in science fiction and through charm guile and sheer luck i have wangled my way into some of the top sci-fi writers out there into their inboxes so we can bring you some great stories i mean just check out the list we have michael moorcox being on there bruce sterling harry harrison ken mcleod we have had the amazing ted chang with his merchant the alchemist gate alistair reynolds has been on there jeff vandermeer in my eyes joe haldeman who has wrote the definitive science fiction book the forever war he came on there with a short story called graves which was staggering spider robinson's been on there we've had terry bisson who actually his story bears discover fire has won the awards left right and center hugo's nebulas that story has won the most awards ever we have had rudy rugger on there gene wolf and even top Newcomers there who are like cutting edge, the likes of God Seller, Ted Kuzmatska. These two writers are definitive, are going to be massive in the day. We've had, which is probably one of the best short stories I've listened to in a long time, John Scalzi's After the Coup. It is, in my eyes, hands down, that is one of the best stories I've listened to. It's got humour, it's set in the same universe as Old Man's War. It is an amazing story. Coming in the future, Charlie Stross is coming on the show with a fantastic story. We have more top, top writers. So that's a little bit about Starship Sofa. Like you say, it is just an audio version of, you know, standing on the, the shoulders of giants there, you know, taking a lead from the likes of, you know, Analog and Asimovs. But in its own twist, Starship Sofa puts it out in her own individual way. Now, getting back to my children, and for a while, for about a week now, my kids have seen a side to dad that hasn't been known for a while. He's been rather quiet, hasn't been pestering him about the homework, hasn't been annoying him about picking clothes or putting them in the wash. Dad has been rather quiet, rather distant, rather vague. Ask my wife if the same has been going on there. I haven't been ratty, grumpy, you know, and I've even let the remote control go. Friends have passed me in the street and have wondered... It's Tony a little bit distant there, a little bit vague. Is, is he all right? And it's been for one reason and one reason only. I've been learning my lines. So without stumble, without fault, without hesitation, I can stand up on the bridge of Escape Pod and say... Escape Pod is a production of Escape Artists Incorporated and is distributed on a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivative license. All of the rights are reserved by the authors. 
If you like this week's story, please feel free to tell a friend or blog about it. Or better yet, please consider leaving a donation via the PayPal link on the site. Also check out our sister podcast, Pseudopod and Podcastle at their .org domains. And Escape Pod's baby sister, Wayward Podcast, Starship Sofa. Music is by permission of Daikaiju. You can hear more of them over at daikaiju.org. So that brings to the end my guest slot on Escape Pod. Hopefully that taste of lemon has left now. And it's more a taste of kiwi fruit. When you first look at a kiwi fruit, it is rather an unpleasant looking bit of fruit. But you bite into it and think, you know, that's not too bad. So hopefully that has been your reaction to myself on Escape Pod. Let me just say, I have thoroughly enjoyed it. I hope you have too. A big thank you goes out to Steve for allowing this to happen. And a big thank you to everyone who's listened for putting up with me. Until next time, I would just like to say, good night from me.